Let's go inside Under my skin You come around The other way A dream I had of spinning 30 years in one day Hello and welcome to yet another edition of Act in Context podcast. I'm your co-host John DeLynn with the ever-wonderful Jennifer Plum. Hey Jennifer. Hey. How's it going? Good, good. It's a rare sunny day in Seattle. Yay! And you're about to start your internship. Mm-hmm. Well, we should get right to business because today we have Act Royalty amongst us. Yes, indeed. We have Kelly Wilson Joining us, and for those of you who know nothing about psychology, let alone ACT, Kelly Wilson is one of the co-founders of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, along with uh, Stephen Hayes, who you would have heard from in the first couple episodes of this podcast. Hello, Kelly. Thank you for joining us. Hi there. And you're joining us from sunny Mississippi, is that right? Yes, Furnace Sunny, Oxford, Mississippi today. Oxford. Mm-hmm. It sounds so. It sounds so elite and educational. Is that how it is? Well, you know, the city itself was founded with the idea of convincing the state to build the first comprehensive university here, and they uh, were successful. So the city was not named that by coincidence or accident. So they that's where Ole, that's where Ole Miss is in Oxford. Yes, uh, yes, sir. That's correct. That's okay. Ole Miss. Well, I don't want to I don't want to cheapen this by not doing your bio, so I'm going to jump into your bio real quick. Kelly Wilson is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Mississippi, apparently in Oxford, Mississippi, and has been a leader in the acceptance and commitment therapy work since its early stages. He received his PhD with Stephen Hayes at the University of Nevada, Reno. What number were you, Kelly? Number 16. Number 16, where he participated in early research in verbal behavior and clinical behavior analysis and contributed to the development of ACT. He has co-authored and authored many professional books, including the first ACT book, which everyone should read, uh, Acceptance, Commitment Therapy, and Experiential Approach to Behavior Change. But he's also done ACT for Chronic Pain, ACT for Eating Disorders, uh, Mindfulness for Two, and Acceptance, Commitment Therapy, Approach to Mindfulness and Psychotherapy, which is what we'll be talking about today, and a For the Public book entitled Things Might Go Horribly Wrong, a guide to life liberated from anxiety. And I'm going to guess that all those books have a forward by Steve Hayes. Is that right? <laughs> sorry, sorry. I've actually slipped the Steve Hayes forward punch so far. <laughs> sorry, I just... Maybe you can get him to write one for the uh, new edition of the uh, main act. But... Yeah, <laughs> what the forward by Stephen C. Hayes. By Steve Hayes. For, by for Steve our Hayes. listeners, that's an inside joke because there are lots and lots of act books with a forward by Steve Hayes, but I had to throw that in. Anyway, Dr. Wilson has conducted and continues to conduct research and publishes articles on contextual behavioral science. Did I? That's right. Mm -hmm. And he was instrumental in the development of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, which is the organization that brings to you this podcast, or ACBS, wherein Kelly served as president in 2006. Currently, Kelly, in between teaching and mentoring PhD students, he travels all over the world, literally training therapists in ACT. He is known throughout the ACT community as conducting workshops and trainings from a particularly experiential stance where he has you hold raisins and hold them right up to your mouth but doesn't let you eat them. That's Kelly. And he relies heavily on contacting the present moment. 
both identifying and making space for one's own experiences as well as those that clients experience. That is your bio, and it's inadequate, but it will have to do. <laughs> Any amendments or corrections before we submit it to the record? One amendment is uh, is that um, I spend a lot really a lot of my time with undergraduates every year. Uh, I know a lot of people try to uh, avoid undergraduate teaching and do all graduate teaching. I'm not one of those. I love working with undergraduates. How cool. Yeah, you got a teaching award uh, about a year ago, correct? That is right. I, won, mm-hmm. I was uh, honored to win the um, uh, university-wide uh, teaching award. It's called the Hood, the Hood uh, Award. Making a difference in early, early impressionable minds. (laughs) 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 Insert evil laughter. (laughs) That's right. Sometimes people ask me, you know, uh, um, well, (laughs) I I have been known to be slightly subversive, but I think it's probably in the job description of a college uh, professor to be, you know, somewhat subversive. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... We have done acceptance, we've done diffusion, and we have done um, self as context. And so our listeners have that background. What we haven't done is mindfulness or contact with the present moment. But before we jump into that, why don't we just talk a little bit about what brought you to ACT? And um, any, any a, a few personal things just to get us a sense for your background and who you are so that we'll like you enough to want to listen to you. Yeah, well, I can understand that. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I, I, part of how I found my way to act was, you know, I had to do with how I found my way to behaviorism. Um, I was uh, uh, of the opinion as an undergraduate, early in my undergraduate career, of thinking that you know, behaviorism was probably important for, you know, animal training um, or maybe uh, helping people with developmental disabilities to learn sort of living skills. But it was very hard for me to see what it had to do with, you know, questions like, you know, will I stay alive or not? And what will the purpose of that be? For that, I really was relying on uh, uh, people like Viktor Frankl and his, you know, just magnificent work. Uh, in existential psychotherapy, um, and uh, I encountered my first really sophisticated behavioral person and uh, who claimed that behaviorism could help us to understand any and all the activities of a whole organism, and I went to him with my copy of Man's Search for Meaning and said, what about this? Can it help me to understand how a person could find uh, liberation and meaning in a death camp. Um, now, I've told that story, and uh, a woman in Australia asked me a few years ago, she said, did he give you an answer? And I said, no, he gave me a job. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I've been on the job ever since and actually recruiting people to the job. Um, it, you know, it led very quickly to, you know, I understand your, your concern with, um, you know, people's, you know, kind of sense of liberation and their ability to choose their way in life and find purpose and meaning. He said, what are you going to do? And, you know, behaviorism is about that. You know, how do we organize circumstances so that, um, uh, you know, people, you know, have a better chance to really exercise the uh, kinds of values that they would want to exercise. And um, he 
introduced me to the lunatic fringe of behavior analysis and Steve <laughs> Steve Hayes was one of the chief uh, lunatics um, at the asylum and uh, and I got this funny chapter that um, spoke to me in a, a very very deep way about um, you know some ways that um, I had tried to cope with hard things in my own life that um, didn't work in uh, really profound ways and pointed towards some alternatives you know like acceptance and you know like the cultivation of a uh, present moment focused valued uh, existence and um, like they say uh, you know the the writing was on the wall you know I mean it was, the rest is history it was uh, you know, when I, I read that chapter, I knew where I needed to go to graduate school. <laughs> I, I, now, I went to graduate school with the idea that I would learn this therapy. It wasn't actually called ACT then, but I went there with the idea I would learn it. I did not go there with the idea that I would, um, you know, help write the first book-length treatment or get the first, you know, grant um, uh, funded. Those were uh, beyond my ambitions. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of happy side effects of doing things that you really, really care about. Mm-hmm. And Kelly, we'd be remiss, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't have you just tell us a little bit more about your background in terms of maybe a few of the demons you struggled with that kind of inform your story. And I, I, I hope I'm not out of place by asking you to just talk briefly about that, just so people can kind of fill in a little bit of those blanks. No, I'm uh, I'm happy to, and I'm actually somebody who has sort of broken the rules about, you know, the sort of silence that surrounds um, uh, suffering uh, on a regular basis uh, throughout my academic uh, career. Um, so, you know, when I said some very ineffective ways of coping that I have, um, you know, I've been quite public in the fact that prior to my 30th birthday, um, I had uh, a, a long and um, I think you would have to say savage uh, substance uh, abuse uh, history that included um, alcohol and many, many um, uh, other um, uh, illegal uh, substances. And it, it was, um, you know, unto death, you know, for me. Uh, as I said, I've talked pretty publicly about it. I um, I spent, you know, a month in 1985 in a locked psychiatric hospital, and uh, they didn't have me there by mistake. <laughs> um, you know, there was keys to the elevator, and they didn't issue me a set when I got there. And and uh, you know that there were really good reasons for that. And you know, I'd just come. Uh, to a sort of a, a really hard end where, um, you know, I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't contend anymore. I, there was just really almost nothing left of me. And uh, just tiny little threads holding me in this world. And, uh, and the most marvelous uh, transformation, um, you know, started from there. Mm-hmm. You know, from that kind of desperate place where I didn't have enough left in me to uh, fight. 
I don't know if you've covered acceptance yet, but I sometimes joke with people that there are a couple of different paths to acceptance and, and to letting go. Um, uh, you know, one path is if I'm holding on to something and you start hitting me with a baseball bat, if you hit me, you know, like a few dozen times, eventually I will let go. Um, so that was really my path to letting go. Um, uh, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I, don't rec- I don't recommend it. A lot of um, abuse along the way. <laughs> yeah, you, you yeah. Don't have to, you don't have to, you know, you can do it voluntarily. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did it kicking and screaming. I found my way to acceptance uh, kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, you know, I was fortunate because a lot of the people that I, you know, hung out with in the 1970s, um, and uh, early 1980s, uh, you know, only made it to the graveyard. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 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 fortunate. I had a lot of people who uh, uh, reached out to me and who saw things in me uh, that I could not see in myself. Um, and Steve Hayes um, is 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 absolutely, you know, one of the, you know, one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, just as a as a person, besides. I mean, his Vita speaks for itself in terms of his scientific accomplishments. But, you know, there's a kind of a human uh, side to that that um, some people don't know because they're sort of intimidated by the Vita and the publication track record. And that's like the real live uh, human being who, um, you know, looks in, you know, deep into students and, um, and uh, makes a place for them to make, a, you know, their own contribution. Mm-hmm. So, His yeah. incredible patience and willingness for people to be where they're at. <laughs> yeah, well, you need that with me. <laughs> <laughs> mm, sounds beautiful. It has been. All right. Well, let's take this enormous leap into present um, present moment and uh, mindfulness, and and talk about what the heck it has to do with acceptance and diffusion and uh, selfish context. Sure, sure. Well, and all the others, too. <laughs> the value right. committed action piece, yeah. But, but the people haven't heard yet. True, true. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, we'll see. We'll see. If we, I think we can link those up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so do you want, would you like me to just kind of um, say a few words about kind of how I found my way to this? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Or, you have, um, well, uh, you know, one, there's quite a bit of mindfulness that is uh, out there in the public domain right now. You know, there's a lot of people working on mindfulness for pain and uh, stress and depression and lots and lots of different things. Um, one sort of common feature of a lot of these folks is that they have backgrounds in mindfulness. And uh, that... Um, Meaning was, like a sitting practice or a yes, meditation exactly. practice? Mindfulness or- meditation <laughs> practice. Um, and, you know, people like John Kabat-Zinn, for example, who um, had a long-standing mindfulness meditation practice, who sort of looked at the benefits that he saw in his own life from that and thought, how can I apply this to the kind of problems that I see coming into the hospital? Um, you know, that is a not uncommon situation. So there are a lot, the late Alan Marlatt uh, in substance abuse, um, uh, Marsha Linehan, uh, in the treatment of um, people with self-injurious behaviors, um, you know, or these are folks who themselves had uh, really substantial mindfulness practice. That was really not my way in. Um, my way into mindfulness was um, because um, I am 
such a lunatic. Um, you know, I mean, I tend towards, you know, being kind of hyper and, you know, all over the place. And, you know, the only reason I probably never got an ADHD diagnosis is because there weren't very many psychiatrists around back in the 1950s. <laughs> um, uh, certainly not at the schools. Um, but, you know, how I came to it was um, really um, about uh, six years ago, I suppose, a good friend of mine who is a mindfulness teacher, Judith Soulsby, is a wonderful mindfulness teacher in Bangor, uh, Wales, asked me to come and present at the International Mindfulness Conference. And I thought, and I told her, I said, that doesn't make any sense. I said, I don't know anything about mindfulness. And she said, yes, you do. And I said, no, I don't. And she said, yes, you do. And we went back and forth a couple of times. And, you know, eventually I said yes, um, because I've had a really good track record with people who could see in me things I couldn't see in myself. And, and I know that Judith knew a lot about mindfulness and that she wouldn't just say that, you know, out of the blue. And so what it forced me to do was to kind of look in to what it was that I was doing that caused her uh, to say, you know, I want you to come and present on mindfulness um, in Wales. And what she was seeing was the result of um, me being in therapy, working with people who were troubled, you know, really troubled, and being an unbelievably bad listener. Um, like, mm. you know, finding myself in therapy with somebody, you know, sort of crying their eyes out and all of a sudden, you know, I would see this person across from me and I would think, um, I mean, have you ever like, you know, when you're driving in your car, had these moments where you're going along for five or 10 minutes, you know, kind of daydreaming or something like that. And all of a sudden you realize like, oh my goodness, I don't know where I am. Uh-huh. This was like that, except I was in therapy. Oh my gosh. And, you know, and yeah, and I just, yeah. and I felt awful, you know, because there's a person crying their eyes out, you know, or telling me some heartfelt trouble they're having, and I'm sort of drifting off. You know, I mean, it turns out that, you know, if you're pretty socially skillful, you can save, you know, you probably find yourself doing that, or at least I find myself doing that in regular conversations, you know, and usually then if you just pay attention for a couple of minutes, you, you, can you can act it. You can right. act like you heard what was going on. So, like, you <laughs> nod your head a couple of times and now you're back in the conversation. Right. But I, I felt bad about it. You know, I felt like that it was, you know, unfair to this person who was coming to me for help. And so what I started doing was um, I started just stopping and saying, you know, I can tell you're talking about something that's really important and hard. And I just want to make sure that I'm like really getting this. And, um, and so I'm just going to ask you to, Say what you just said again, and you know i'm 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 gonna listen as hard as I can, and I'm gonna ask you to sort of slow down as you say it to me so that I can really you know really hear the heart of it and what happened was this kind of process of slowing down in therapy, and in the midst of that, sometimes um people sort of showed up to things in their experience that they had not noticed before. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I got to be there for it. And it was, it was very cool. Um, in some ways, it's a little bit like um, if you walked along a path um, to work every day and you'd walk that path, you know, a hundred times, you know, sort of nice brisk walking pace. You could stop anywhere along that path 
and sit down and just get quiet and you would hear and see things that you had never heard or seen before even though you'd been that way many times before. Um, this was kind of like that except the path that I was walking was these kind of human stories, you know, the stories people carry um, into treatment. And uh, over the years, I found myself cultivating this practice of asking people to slow down, of sometimes asking them to repeat things that were really important, of maybe letting my eyes go closed and asking them to close their eyes for a minute so that we could sort of visualize, you know, the places that they'd been and that they were telling me about. And in the midst of that, um, I saw some very powerful things uh, happen in therapy um, for them. And like I said, I got to be there for it. Mm -hmm. um, that's what Judith was seeing, was that sort of, you know, intentional bringing of uh, awareness and attention to bear in that kind of uh, careful uh, way. And when I say careful, I don't mean cautious. I mean with care, like you'd treat a family heirloom or, you know, something valuable. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So hence, mindfulness for two is really about that process that you just discussed. Yeah, because inside that is, is you're both showing up. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and Mindfulness for Two, it turns out, to, uh, was a kind of an unfortunate title. Uh, <laughs> uh, it has not led to big book sales. Uh, uh, because people see the title and they think, oh, it's a couple's book. Yeah, well, I don't that's what do I, couples, oh, yeah. I don't do couples therapy, so I don't need that book. Um, we probably ought to rename it if there's ever a second edition. Is it a good book? Do you, do you, still, <laughs> do you still like it? I mean, now? Um, it's my favorite thing I've ever written. Oh, wow. Well, then, yeah. listeners, check it out. I, I, I'll second that. I think uh, if you just want a single volume that helps you learn how to show up literally and figuratively to, to your life and to the people sitting across from you, if you're a therapist, um, there, there's things in here, like I was, I was telling John earlier, that there's segments here about eye contact, posture, vocal tone. Um, changes in speed and things like that. The very much around just listening and showing up to all of the cues that emotional things may be happening and how can you just be there with that person, help them get some distance from it just by virtue of seeing it in a slowed down way like Kelly was just mentioning. So highly recommended. Okay, so the for two is just you with someone else, anyone. Exactly. Mm -hmm. okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, the two I had in mind when I was writing the book was the therapist and client, but really any two humans. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we spend a lot of our times kind of half listening and half watching and half noticing. And, me, me, you know, me. That's me. <laughs> you know, well, and, you know, I mean, for good reason, it, it turns out that half is enough for a lot of things. <laughs> It is. It, it, it is. You know, if you're like, um, you know, I mean, a lot of times conversations are not about these really profound or meaningful kinds of things. They're just, you know, how to get from point A to point B. And you got guys like me who are pouring out words a mile a minute. You, you don't have to listen to every word I say to get what it is I have to say. <laughs> I mean, really, probably the mindfulness was probably... And I, I almost certainly, it was more. It was for me more than it was for the client. It's because I'm so not mindful, <laughs> and so the client mindfulness was really kind of a side effect. Um, it was about you know me showing up, you know, for people 
um, uh, you know, you know, because that was a value that I had, and that's what they came there for. Um, right. So it really started off, you know, kind of focused on how can I be more useful in this room, more attentive. Um, it, it, it I, when I say that it is my favorite thing that I've ever written, it's because it's it's oddly voiced. Um, I've spent, you know, most of my time writing, um, writing in a kind of a scientist voice and, you know, so kind of a fair amount of third person um, uh, sort of, you know, speaking, uh, they, them. Um, in this book is almost completely written in first and second person. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's I think, almost certainly the strangest um, um, therapy manual um, that I've ever bumped into, at least uh, inside of scientific psychology, because the whole thing is just a conversation between me and the reader. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's a very detailed conversation in places, but it's all like, here are the things I've experienced. What about you? And I ask the reader very, very direct questions. When I was writing it, I felt kind of like, yipes, you know, like, is it okay for me to do this? You know, <laughs> you know my, I'm sort of breaking the rules here. Uh, <laughs> I want to kind of apologize. I don't want to be too intrusive. Well, let, let's, let's just, let's dive into the heart of that book then and just ask at the start, what is what is this? What is this present moment thing, and why does it matter? Yeah, yeah. Where does it come it, from? It probably does seem sort of odd for a behavioral guy, like talking about present moment processes. Um, in a certain sense, um, you know, I'm interested in how um, situations, contexts, including interpersonal contexts, influence people and have an impact on them, and how people can sort of learn from those interactions and grow and change in those interactions. And so if you think about it, um, your mere physical presence isn't enough. You know, like if we had you anesthetized or something, it wouldn't matter what the situation was. It wouldn't have any influence on you. Um, But there's a lot of continuum between anesthetized and fully present. Um, yeah, <laughs> a, a person who's right. fully present is going to be in the best position to benefit um, from the circumstances they're in, and you know probably you know to duck if something bad is coming at them. Frankly. Exactly. Um, um, but in between, there are all of these kind of middle steps of being kind of half there, part there, um, um, and it turns you know, and there are plenty of places like if you're watching television, you know, you can catch about every third line and you can keep up just fine. But there are some conversations you want to really be there for so that they can have an influence um, over you. So for the client, present moment processes are essential because um, you know we're hoping that they're sitting in the middle of potentially corrective um, kinds of experiences. Uh, in therapy, including experiences that will sort of orient them when they leave the therapy room in particular ways. So for them to have their eyes open while they're in therapy and to be, you know, really present is important. Um, And it is, you know, uh, also going to be important for them to cultivate that as a practice so that when they're moving around in the world, they have available to them uh, this ability to bring awareness to bear sort of on purpose in a 
way that is both flexible and uh, focused, uh, a sort of a non-exclusive uh, attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so this so, really is about attention. Um, in in many respects, it, it, sometimes um, people hear present moment processes and they say, "Well, it sounds like mindfulness." I would say, uh, at least from an act perspective, that mindfulness is probably best described as the convergence of present moment processes, of uh, uh, diffusion, of acceptance, and of uh, some sort of transcendent sense of uh, self. The present moment processes uh, piece in there, I would say, is... um, and I think of all of these as repertoires. They're sort of, um, you could think of them as skillful behaviors, and you can practice them, and you mm-hmm. can get better at them. And the mm-hmm. one in particular that we're talking about today, um, uh, present moment processes, is about the ability to bring awareness to bear on purpose, so it's by choice, um, with the dual quality of both focus and flexibility. So in contrast to that, um, you might find an example of moment-by-moment awareness that is highly focused um, um, but not very flexible. So something like video game play. Uh, You know, a person might be super focused um, moment-by-moment. Zoned out. Yeah, but but bombs could go off around it. It's kind of of an exclusive sort of focus. Um, The other extreme would be flexibility without focus. And, you know, you see a sort of uh, ADHD, you know, kind of lack of concentration, kind of Mm -hmm. jumping from one subject to another, um, sort of like me, (laughs) Uh, 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 you know, would be, you know, the other piece. You know, what we want to cultivate here is the ability to say, okay, now I'm bringing my awareness to this um, in a way that allows me to um, make contact with whatever it is I'm bringing my awareness to, um, but that is not, that doesn't have that kind of inflexibility um, and, uh, you know, that we see in something like video game play, for example. Mm. Not to say that these different states of mind are bad. I mean... You know, they're fine where they're fine. You know, if I'm out, you know, lolling in my swimming pool, you know, floating around to have my awareness sort of move here and there and the other places, it's fine to focus in a video game or a movie or something. Or if your house is on fire and you got to get out. Mm -hmm. But exactly. But some situations and, and particularly, you know, really meaningful interpersonal situations are, you know, you know, they're very often complex and subtle. Um, sometimes um, people say things and there's more going on than just what they said. And sometimes you can sort of see that in their eyes or hear it in sort of subtleties and tone of voice. Um, and, you know, without this, this, this sort of careful attention, uh, much can be missed. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, for clients, we want to cultivate this. Now, for therapists, you know, they are in the middle of one, I mean, by definition, in the middle of one of just that sort of, you know, inner densely, interpersonally meaningful conversations. If they're going to provide good coaching, you know, you could imagine like if you were like a baseball coach, 
who didn't watch his batters while they were at batting practice, he would be a bad coach. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if uh, you know, you know, there's a reason that, you know, a pitching coach, you know, takes videos of that and slows it down and watches, you know, the minutia of the mechanics of that pitch in order to provide that um, coaching. So for the therapist, the mindfulness or, you know, in this kind of present moment processes is, you know, this ability to bring your awareness to your client um, and in all of their complexity, um, uh, you know, moment by moment in a session. And uh, it's a practice. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, it, it's, it's nice that, um, do you know, I mean, do you know what a super, super experience, like the best meditator, most experienced meditator on the planet um, uh, does with regard to mindfulness meditation? Uh, they practice. They yeah. practice. Yeah. <laughs> they practice. Uh-huh. Right? And so, you know, the the craziest of us, you know, like me, <laughs> we <laughs> practice. And the really super, super experienced and and really excellent, you know, people who are really good at that, I mean, really good at bringing awareness to bear in that way, that's what they do too. They practice. Yeah. So, Ke- so, Kelly, before you continue, conceptually I get it. What I want you now to do is pull at my, in our heart and emotional strings, sell to us what type of improved life we'll have through some examples, if we, if we can gain this skill. So, you'll have yeah. a better X, a better Y. You'll sure, have more sure. meaningful Z. Sure. What will this get yeah. us? Yeah. Um, well, um, let me uh, give you an example that, that uh, means a lot to me. And I, I hope that she would be okay with this. <laughs> um, I had a, a conversation, you know, a year or so ago with um, uh, one of my daughters. And um, we were riding home from swimming practice in the truck. And, you know, there was something in her tone of voice that, you know, sort of spoke to me. It wasn't in what she was talking about, but it was in her tone of voice. And um, and I remember stopping the conversation and just asking her this question, um, you know, in a way like, like I really want to know what's going on, like so that, you know, she could hear it, you know, and I pulled my truck over to the side of the road and... Um, and I said, you know, you know, I said to her, you know, l- let me hear, you know, what is going on with you. And, and I, you know, I'm not completely convinced that in the midst of the conversation we had ha- been having before that she was even completely aware of it. Because a lot of things run our behavior outside of awareness. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we have to slow down to really notice what's pushing on us. And... um you know, we slowed down there on the side of the road and, you know, she and I had this conversation that was like an hour long sitting on the side of the, you know, Highway 334 here in Oxford, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I I got a call from my wife and, you know, she's like, are you guys coming home for dinner? (laughs) And, uh, And I said, pretty soon, you know, pretty soon. And, you know, it was one of these conversations that, you know, like afterwards I thought, 
you know, as a father of daughters, I just sort of felt, you know, really privileged, you know, really like, like, um, grateful that, you know, my daughter, um, can talk to me, you know, about things that are deeply meaningful to her. And, um, that, you know, at least that day, I was there enough to see that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, They're like, like emotionally present. Like, yeah, you're aware. yeah, like I, yeah. I could hear, I could hear, you know, I could hear, mm-hmm. you know, her, you know, uh, need to be able to sort of speak her mind and uh, have a place to uh, be heard. And, and um, you know, and it was, you know, just this extraordinary and wonderful uh, exchange. Well, if you're listening and uh, you're a parent, tell me what's more important than that. <laughs> and if you're listening and you have a parent, <laughs> yeah, tell me, you know, what's mm-hmm. more important than that. And, you know, and I don't mean this in any kind of smarmy way, but like, you know, the moment, you know, when you get that your parent is really hearing you, I mean, really hearing you, and and that, and they're like listening hard for the heart of what it is you have to say. Well, I mean, I I I think that, um, and I don't want to pretend like I'm like really great at this because I'm not. I know people who are really great at this, um, but I'm practicing. Mm-hmm. And that day, you know, I'd practiced enough that you know I heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I mean, if you think about it, um, people's most, the, the, the thing that people have, the, I think, the biggest troubles that I hear about in the clinic, you know, over, you know, 20, I don't know how many years of, you know, <laughs> supervising and seeing clients and, and like that is it's difficulties, interpersonal difficulties. So it's difficulties with people at work, it's difficulties with, you know, spouses with children, with friends, um, you know, with um, uh, partners. Um, And then there's what people do with those difficulties. And one of the primary things that people do with those difficulties is um, they worry about them and they ruminate about them. (laughs) So anything but the present future. Yes, exactly. I mean, just notice what, I mean, think about in your own life, if you think about where you have the biggest difficulties and have had the biggest difficulties in your life, you know, and just check it out and see if it is in in these interpersonal areas. And then what did you do about it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, very often, you know, people fuss about it and they worry and they ruminate and, you know, worry and rumination um, tend to take people out of contact with the present moment. And so, but they're funny because they sort of promise that they're going to make life better. Sure, you know? that's the whole point worry of worry. Sort of, like, if I figure it out, if I worry enough about it, I can make a plan. <laughs> to exactly. Prevent something exactly. that my mind tells me is going to happen from happening. E- exactly. Yeah. And I'm not like anti planning or anything. <laughs> but, you know, some, but some planning is useful and some planning um, is, you know, it's just like, like if you're in your car and, uh, you know, you're axle deep in mud, um, you know, the wheels turning doesn't do you any good, you know. And, you know, part of learning to drive a car is like, oh, I know that sound. That's the sound of my wheels spinning. Mm-hmm. Stop, 
pressing on the gas now, you know, and, and, uh, we, we learn that with cars a lot more easily than we learn that with our own minds, (laughs) you know, worry and rumination are perfectly good behaviors. Just like the turning of the wheels is a good thing. It gets you where you're going, you know, the, the non, you know, the good version of rumination is it's good to review your mistakes. Um, um, so that you can, you know, correct your own behavior and move ahead. It's good to think about the future and to plan for some kinds of things. Um, although you really need to be flexible in your planning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, but if you indulge in those things too much, you lose the very moment that you're trying uh, to win. Yeah. Um, the you know the the other thing and you know i would want to emphasize the flexibility as i said you know something about correcting your behavior you know in the future and and about you know you know sort of healthy looking uh ahead and planning for the future um is i said you know making plans is good it's a very good thing to do and i very much recommend it but keep them flexible um <laughs> You know, one of the ways that um, I illustrate this when I um, uh, teach is I'll, I'll ask an audience, um, you know, how many people in here are married? And, you know, you'll get a quite a, or ever were married, and you'll get a lot of hands that will go up in an audience. And then I ask people, remember what you thought marriage was going to be like when you got married, you know, what you were married was going to be like. You weren't going to make those mistakes your parents made, for example, and stuff like that, you know, and you weren't going to, you know, and, and, and then I like to ask people, and didn't it turn out just like that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it always gets a laugh, you know, uh, or I ask them, you know, how many people in here have children, you know, and the same set of questions, you know, and didn't it turn out just like that? And, you know, the longer people have had children, the more clear it is to them that, you know, this is a world where you either bend or you break. Mm. Um, you know, mm. we're right in the middle of these kind of complex, dynamic, interpersonal relations. And so, how do you know when to sort of loosen your grip on the plan? Well, you're going to have to be there that day. You're going to have to be present that day. If you're yeah. busy worrying about later or before... Um, you're not going to be there to know when to ease up on the plan. Um, I can give you a, an example of this from the psychotherapy research. Um, mm-hmm. There was a study done in, at the, I believe it was at the University of Washington. Um, if I'm recalling correctly, I believe it was the, oh, no, no, I'm thinking of, I'm mixing two studies together. Some um, study. I believe, this was, I believe it was an anxiety study. And in this study, they looked at people who were coming in, and it was a. If people don't know what um, clinical research trials are like, usually there's a pretty strong sort of set of, you know, in session one you do this, in session two you do that, and so there's a kind of set of things that people will do across a dozen sessions or something like that in the treatment um, that they're testing, and. So this was an anxiety trial where they were treating people for anxiety. And what they did was they looked at people who came in, clients who came in, in the, you know, at any point in the trial and said, oh, my wife just left me or, oh, 
you know, I just got fired from my job or my company just went bankrupt or some, some kind of big event in the person's life. And then they looked at what the therapist did. And so did the therapist, um, you know, sort of um, um, figuratively sort of let loose of the protocol and attend to what the person brought in and sort of work with that. And then, you know, when it made sense, sort of come back to the protocol or did they really stick to the protocol? you know, really hard and fast to the protocol and, you know, just sort of moved past that. And then how did the clients do? And, you know, what they found was there were better outcomes when the therapist, you know, sort of stopped and attended to what was, you know, in the room there. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's just kind of an experimental example. Um, you know, and it makes, it, you know, and I think it, it, it makes sense. Now, yeah. our treatment protocol is good. You betcha. And, uh, you know, I've, written treatment protocols and you know I'm a believer in a science of human behavior um, and you know treatment protocols are part of that um, flexible protocols um, and the study that I was referring to before Neil Jacobson that Neil Jacobson did with behavioral mm -hmm. um, couples therapy um, looked at flexible versus inflexible uh, treatment uh, protocols. Mm. Uh, so it was the same treatment, but one, they gave the, the therapist a little bit of latitude to sort of move around inside of the protocol, and the other one was pretty tightly driven. They got better outcomes when there was some flexibility in the protocol. So a protocol is a plan, like any plan, any human plan, you know, and especially when you're dealing with, you know, humans, uh, um, be ready to bend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, I think or the be ready to break. <laughs> I think the question then comes, though, um, you know, particularly for new therapists or folks just in their own lives trying to decide, like, what what decision process do you go through to to identify when to be flexible? Yeah, that's it's a it's a great it's a great question, and I I uh, and um, I wish that I had a really <laughs> you know surefire answer, but I don't. Um, you know, my answer is uh, practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say, you know, for therapists, uh, um, I would say, um, y you know, Western civilization is really just madly in love with independence. Um, uh, you know, it's like virtuous. The DSM has a dependent personality disorder. They do not have an independent personality <laughs> disorder. What is that? That? I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I think independence is really grossly overrated. Interesting. You know, um, you know in my lab, um, you win the prize for working together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, together with others. Um, I'm not much interested in um, in working with students who just want to go off on their own and work. Um, you know, and if, that's fine if people want to do that, but I'm not interested in doing that. So for therapists, I would say. You know, if you work in a group practice, that's wonderful. Um, sit down and listen to your own psychotherapy tapes um, um, with others. And I know that's painful. And here's the sessions you want to listen to. The ones that you, the tapes that you don't want to listen to, yeah. <laughs> those yeah. are the ones that you really want to listen to. You know, the ones that you wish you'd forgotten to record that session, uh -huh. those are the ones you want to listen to. And you want to sit down. Um, you know, and practice present moment processes listening. Um, sometimes when you get other ears in there too, they can help you to hear things that 
um, are harder to hear on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you can do that. You can take a tape and take a five-minute segment of the tape and listen to it like several times. Take the first five minutes of the session and listen to it a few times and see if you can hear the different things that are going on or might be going on in there. Um, you know, so, you know, I mean, what I would say is practice. Um, what I would say is uh, cultivate an awareness of what's pushing you around in the world. Um, like, uh, let me give you an example. Um, Terry Wilson, who is I have a huge respect for, is a terrific scientist, clinical scientist. Terry says, follow the protocol. Tells therapists, follow the protocol. Mm-hmm. Now, I think, you know, and, you know, you, you could try verifying this with Terry if you'd like, but I think the reason Terry says follow the protocol is because if you uh, let therapists just do whatever they want, <laughs> you know, if, uh, if therapists let themselves do just whatever they want and they don't hold to anything, you know, really uh, uh, specific at all, what ends up happening uh, sometimes is that they end up avoiding hard things. It's mm-hmm. a very human. It's a very human thing. Yeah. One of the hardest things to do as a therapist is um, um, what is uh, called exposure therapy. And right. Basically, you know, it means um, encountering, coming in contact with difficult things. Sometimes things like snakes or elevators or like that. Sometimes. Um, things like memories and uh, thoughts, but it's hard. It's hard for the clients and it's hard for the therapist. It's brutal. And so, exactly. There's this natural tendency to kind of ease away from that stuff. Um, it's easier to notice that you're doing that at a slower pace than it is at a faster pace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's easier to notice that if you're present and you've cultivated a practice of being present than it is. You know, if you're half present. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my sense is that, and I, and I spend a lot of time training um, therapists outside science circles, you know, who live outside science circles. Most of the therapists I train every year are not clinical scientists and don't work, train in those circles. And, you know, I have a devil of a time finding therapists who don't care deeply about the client's um, who they're seeing, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it's really about um, helping, you know, creating context that help people get in contact with, in touch with the things that push them around and then to cultivate a practice of noticing the things that push them around. Um, in a certain sense, the reason people say those things about my workshops is that you could kind of, um, I've kind of joked with um, therapists I'm training sometime saying that, you know, there's a fairly high rate of clientophobia among therapists. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like, what do uh, I do if know, my client cries? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. hard. And the more you care, the harder it is. Yeah. Just like, like uh, it's easier to know what to do in the parenting of other people's children than it is in your own children. You know, I I have never met a behavior analyst who wasn't a much, much better behavior analyst with other people's children, you know, with their own children. You know, they're very often just terrible. 
you know, you know, they're busy like reinforcing all the wrong behaviors. Right. <laughs> right? You know, yeah. it's it's harder. Why is it harder? Well, it's harder because you 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 care about those. You got a personal stake in there. So there's this kind of funny bind, and that is that the um, kind of the more you care about your clients the more invested you are in them. And I, I um, unashamedly say, would say that I love my clients and my students. Mm-hmm. The more you're invested in them in that way, the more susceptible you are to like that when it hurts them, it hurts you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you, you know, we were talking about um, the connection to other processes. Well, acceptance is one of those things we're practicing in this moment-by-moment way. Um, You can't sit with people who are in the middle of hard things and care about them and not experience hard things yourself. You know, to the extent you can be present and accept that, then you get to sit with them and to be in a position to be more useful uh, to them. Um, If you take something like diffusion, if you're in there busy telling yourself stories about, you know, am I a good enough therapist or maybe I should refer them to someone else and blah, 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 and oh, man, they probably think I'm an idiot and blah, 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 right. and you're busy doing that, meantime, your client is over there waiting for you to show up. <laughs> right. <laughs> the same way, and right. another more insidious one is that sometimes therapists are able to bring focus to bear on their clients, but it is has the intent, the intentness of like video game play. And so sometimes they bring a focus to bear that lacks um, flexibility. So that's that other piece in there that we want to cultivate for clients so that they can sort of move most effectively through the difficulties they encounter, but also for therapists so that they can move, you know, you know carefully. And again, I mean with care, not with caution, mm-hmm. uh, through the difficulties that a therapist um, uh, faces and and for those who are just listeners, it could be your wife, you know, your spouse, your husband, yeah. your children, yeah, exactly. your yes. any meaningful relationship. Absolutely, yeah. the same principles apply. The the exact same principles apply. And in fact, you're really a better instrument than you think you are. I mean, you're you're really a better. Uh, and and there's there's nothing terribly mystical about that. Um, it, it's 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 more a matter of practice than it is a matter of like woo woo or mysticism. You know, like <laughs> if you um, you mean an instrument for listening? Yes, like a tuning you, fork kind and, of. And okay, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't even mean just for listening. I mean listening, seeing, hearing, mm. feeling. You are a, a fine, fine instrument. Um, but you know, if you take the finest. Uh, instrument in the world like a like a uh like jen i know you sing uh mm-hmm. beautiful mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a fine instrument there but if um you know we put you know uh a uh, hundred pounds of uh bricks on top of you that <laughs> instrument would not play so well no right? not so much <laughs> have a you know um i've got a beautiful uh, Taylor 810 guitar. Uh, if you put, you know, 100 pounds of bricks on top of it, it would not sound so good, yeah. you know? And so, you know, the question is, um, you know, one is an issue of practice and becoming 
a good instrument, you know, uh, the most useful instrument, at least for me. That's what I'm trying to do. But the other is kind of taking the bricks off the instrument. And, you know, the bricks are non-acceptance, worry, rumination. In that kind of selfish context area, the bricks are confusing how you're doing with a client with who you are as a person. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm an invalid human being. I mean, nobody actually says this to them. Like I'm an invalid human being uh, if I don't help this client. Um, but just because you don't say it out loud doesn't mean it isn't pulling at you. Yeah. Um, and so some kind of practice that helps you not confuse yourself with your roles, with your work, even with the things that you love mm-hmm. um, can, you know, make you better at serving even those things that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you got to hold even that you love gently mm-hmm. um, if, if you really want to serve them. Um, you know, uh, if there are like listeners who have uh, children, especially older children, you probably know something about what I'm talking about. If you hold them too tight, um, you know, the day comes that, you know, they figure out that, um, you know, they're strong enough to break free. Yeah, and they break free and they run hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right, totally. You know, there's the same. It's the same issue, you know, that Jen was just asking me about. You know, like how do you know when to, you know, well, practice <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and and have it be okay to be like, you know, really wrong. Um, yeah. Because if it's not okay to be wrong, game over. Yeah. You know, if it is not okay to be wrong then, you know, you're done before you start. Yeah. Um, because it, it, it is not a question. You know, the anxiety book that uh, Troy Dufresne and I wrote, um, uh, Things Might Go Terribly Horribly Wrong, I, I sort of jokingly put up a slide with the book cover, and I said, the book title, this book title is actually a lie. <laughs> and, uh, and then I put the it will. same title of the book. <laughs> exactly. I put the cover up, and I have this red X through might, and then I've got the word will to the side. Things will. And you know what I tell people? Is I say, you know, the only thing between you and things going terribly, horribly wrong is birthdays. You know, <laughs> if you have enough birthdays, things will go terribly, horribly wrong. You know, everything yeah. you love will be lost to you, or you will be lost to it. And and you know, I like to remind people that sometimes you don't get, you know, some people don't get hardly any birthdays at all. Mm-hmm. Um, before things go terribly, horribly wrong. Some people don't even get one um, right. before things go terribly, horribly wrong. Yeah. So the question is, you know, what do you do with that on the day that things go terribly, horribly wrong? And and it's a process. And, and so like in therapy, you know, uh, it's as true there as it is anyplace else. Therapy, both the therapist and the client, is just mm-hmm. more life. Mm-hmm. And... You know, when you're there in that room, you will make mistakes. You know, you will. Uh, and then the question is, what do you do when that happens? Mm-hmm. Um, my strategy is, um, I hope that I notice as soon as possible uh, mm-hmm. so that I create as little mess as possible. Kind of like, have you ever stepped in, like, uh, you know, the neighbor's dog left the deposit? <laughs> and you stepped in and walking into the house, you know? You know, yeah. some days you want to you limit step. the footsteps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some days you walk in, you tramp all over the house, and then you're like, "What is that smell?" And you look around, and there's like brown footprints everywhere. You know, 
on your better days, you know, um, uh, you know, maybe you notice it before there are many footprints, or maybe you even notice it before you step into the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same thing is true in therapy, and and the same thing is true about what you do about it. Is when what you do about it is, you know, you clean up. So I mean, I've had more than one client where, um, for example, like my biggest mistake in therapy as a therapist is that I confuse um, what a client. Um, what I think a client needs to do with what a client needs to do. Mm. Mm. Um, and I'm yeah. correct. And when I'm correct, it's worse. You know? <laughs> what do you mean? When what I mean is, like, I look at them and I say, what this person needs to do is, you know, allow themselves to get really present to this hard situation. And while that may be correct, um, uh, in, you know, in order for them to move ahead, um, it it may that doesn't make it right for me to shove them into that situation because it's mm. their life and yeah. their be and their pace, not mine. Um, you know, uh, you know, all you have to do it's as simple as asking yourself, you know, uh, about the things that you should do, <laughs> and how much do you like it when you know people go shoving you, you know, places that you're not ready to go. So, what's the role of a therapist? It, to be an invitation. You know, to be an invitation, um, to go to difficult places in the service of what you value, mm-hmm. you know, of what, you know, I mean, what the client values. Um, that, that is my job, is to be an invitation, you know, not, um, now sometimes I'm in the kind of invitation that is a kind of quiet, even maybe even silent invitation. Sometimes the kind I'm a cheerleading invitation. Sometimes I'm a come on, come on invitation. <laughs> These need different invitations, you know. Different ones are appropriate at different times. Um, but I got to watch out from when I stopped being some kind of invitation to being some kind of coercion. And I, you know, could hardly count the number of clients that, you know, I have said to them, you know, the last thing you need in your life is one more person telling you what to do. Totally. Mm-hmm. I'm, I apologize for that. Please give me another chance. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, you know, one of the main people who has been going around telling them what to do um, and beating them up worse than anybody for most people is themselves. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you, another one of those, like you need an extra hole in your head. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know now how are you going to notice that? I, I don't know anyway, except practice. Mm-hmm. You know, practice. Yep. And, you know, you've talked a lot about. Um, you know, the stance and the, the subtleties and, and, and just practicing being there and practicing watching your own behavior. I think that's a big part of this too, is just, you know, being able to track your own impact on your environment. Like, what is it that I do? How does that get responded to? How do I want to be in terms of my values as a therapist? And I think that's a really important stance. And just like you said, Terry Wilson says, you know, go to the protocol you know, for those who are starting out or, you know, maybe a little bit more uncomfortable in this kind of in present moment kind of work, are there specific strategies you could you could recommend for folks, maybe an exercise or something to sort of get their feet wet and get them practicing with their clients, um, but maybe a little bit more prescribed or, or um, uh, um, you know, set? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've got some very nice um, mindfulness for two um, which 
is published by New Harbinger. When it first came out, it had a DVD that ah. um, came with the book. Um, since it came out in paperback, the DVD DVDs are, I mean, I don't know if people know about this, but physical media are dead. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, if you've got any CDs, you know, sell them fast before no one wants them. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, you know, physical media are dead, and they have like a lot of problems. Like, for example, and this one is like painful to me. Like, there's one of the assessments. It's readily available, but it's supposed to be on the DVD, but it's not on the DVD. And there were probably about, you know, eight thousand copies of the DVD printed before we figured out that it, it oh, wasn't yeah. on there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean. If that were a website, then you could just put it on the website. Well, <laughs> right. It, it right. turns out that now, with the paperback book, we killed the DVD, and we've just made freely available the um, all of the um, things that are on uh, that were on the DVD. So there are things like case conceptualization worksheets. Um, there are things like um, videos of. Um, a particular kind of experiential role play that I do. But the other thing that's on there that I finally get back around to answering your question. <laughs> See how I am? See what I am about drifting around? You tracked it, though. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I've learned to come back, you know. <laughs> For a guy like me who goes away as much as I do, you really have to be good at coming back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've had so much practice, you know. Uh, um, we have a, a website which I cannot, it's got like a, a funny name which I'm going to have to like create like a um, I'm going to have to create a website that's like really really easy to remember and embed this you know link in it but I can provide you with a link that you can put up with a podcast that will give people access to this material including awesome. audio tracks of some exercises like the sweet spot exercise awesome um, you know which is a uh, um, a lovely exercise, and you can do that um, with a pair of people. Um, but you know, you could just as easily do the front end of that exercise as just a mindfulness um, exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, awesome! You, can so you just that, tell and, people and, a little bit about that sweet spot exercise? It's, it's sure, one that I love doing, but I think it's quite powerful. Just even hearing you yes. talk about it. Um, it the the sweet spot exercise is. Uh, um, uh, uh, perhaps one of the most long-standing exercises I have in my workshop repertoire. Things don't tend to stay very long. I kind of get interested in something else and and move on uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is stuck. And and what the exercise is is um, what it's designed um, for um, on the DVD um, and at the website where you can listen to the um, uh, listen to that. Um, it's um, done uh, with a pair of people, um, at least that's the way it's described there. And what it starts with is a mindfulness exercise that focuses on a sweet moment uh, in an individual's life. And so it could be, um, you know, a small, small sort of a moment, uh, you know, like, um, you know, maybe watching your kids play um, where they don't know you're watching them, you know, something mm-hmm. kind of cool like that. Or, you know, if it were my dad, it might be, uh, he'd be on the banks of the St. Joe River in 
the Idaho panhandle and would have some impossible, you know, quantity of fly line suspended in midair. And, you know, you could sort of see the light glinting off the water and, you know, hear the sound of the river and, you know, smell that sort of loamy earth all around him. And, you know, that kind of moment is complete. You know, it, it doesn't need anything. Uh, it doesn't lack anything. And so in this mindfulness exercise, the center of the mindfulness exercise is bringing awareness to some moment like that um, uh, in your own life. Um, at the end of the mindfulness part of the exercise, um, there are two pieces uh, of work that get done. The people who are sitting uh, doing the exercise, um, one person speaks and one person uh, listens and uh, they, there's a little turn-taking and some real slowing down and coaching um, and it allows them uh, a little bit of time to express the sort of details of this uh, sweet moment from their uh, lives. So one person mm -hmm. speaking, one person's listening. Um, there's some hesitations uh, built into that where you have people just kind of get quiet and sit in the middle of that sweet moment let it kind of gather up around them. There's some coaching in there to pay attention to the pace of speech and the pace of listening, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is kind of an odd thing, you know. <laughs> um, but to sort of, you know, speak in a way that you can hear the words and the spaces between the words and listen in a way that, you know, allows you to listen with that kind of care. And um, it's, it's a sumptuous exercise, and uh, I, I sometimes wonder if I will ever tire of it. <laughs> uh, so, and, it's, and these, you don't have to buy the book to get access to the website. Mm -hmm. So all of this material we've just made freely available. Anybody can go look at it, listen to it, um, you know, look at the materials. Um, you know, they can... Um, show them to their friends. Uh, the only thing they can't do is sell them. So, you know, right, right. If you have in mind selling them, then, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's um, free for the looking and listening. Fantastic. Watch. Fantastic. Very cool. So, Kelly, I have one more question for you. Um, you know, I think, you know, just listening to you talk, I think anyone would be, uh, would be able to identify that, you know, you speak with incredible care about your clients and the relationships in your life. Um, and I would say that, you know, in terms of just sort of putting act process names on those kinds of things, probably would link very, very much to values. Mm -hmm. what, what would you say is the, the relationship between mindfulness and values. You know, some yeah, people yeah. have said that ACT is sort of mindfulness and values together. You know, throw in some behavior therapy and you got it, you know. Um, <laughs> and so, so what, would you say, what would you say the relationship between yeah. those two things are? Well, um, you know, m my best, um, you know, so far I'm waiting to be corrected, but um, I, I would say that my best thinking on this would be that you can think of these areas as content and as process. And um, so I do a lot of work where the content is values and commit committed action, but the processes are these mindfulness processes. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So, so I really like um, to take like a valued domain and ask a person to kind of really settle in and help me sort of see, feel, kind of get the grit and grain of it so that I can kind of 
feel the pattern. So, you know, uh, you know, if I were to ask about parenting, help me see a moment when you're parenting that, you know, you know, when you sort of know I'm in the slot, you know, here. Mm-hmm. Same thing with commitment. You know, like if you were to make a new kind of commitment in your own life, you know, help me see that. Like, so for example, if somebody were asking me about that a little over two years ago, um, uh, in uh, honor of my uh, 56th birthday, I, uh, I gave myself a present. And the oh. present was uh, the gift of um, a, a regular yoga practice. Mm. And, um, and so if somebody asked me about that, help me, you know, understand that, that one day at a time kind of commitment uh, to that. Um, you know, what I might tell them is um, that I remember when I first started going and uh, I would be laying in the studio and, you know, mostly all I could do at first was, you know, child's pose. I was <laughs> pretty good at that. <laughs> and uh, thank heaven for child poses. Yeah. <laughs> yoga is another one of those things where, the, you know, the best yogis in the world practice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I remember really clearly, like, sort of laying on that, um, on my mat and that hardwood floor, um, uh, you know, and uh, lights turned down at the end of the session and kind of a last few sort of stretches. And and all around me on the floor there, you know, are um, laying people who are there like taking care of themselves, you know. And I can hear the teachers, uh, 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 Stevie Self, uh, you know, her sort of gentle voice in the background. And I find myself in the middle of this stretch and I find myself treating me just like somebody I really, really loved, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember thinking, you know, sort of, wow, you know, like, you know, this is what I would do for somebody, you know, who I really cared about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I want to coach with people. Sometimes people want to rush to action. Mm-hmm. And... um you know, the biggest inhibitors of um, values and commitment, I think, are fusion and avoidance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think this kind of deep appreciation, this kind of mindful sitting with values and commitment actually frees people up to actually engage uh, in valued action, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, in constructing valued patterns. Mm-hmm. and engaging in uh, valued uh, action. Well, and so, it sounds like you really show up, too. You know, if you're not showing up to valued action, where, where are you getting the enjoyment out of it? Where are you getting, well, you know, the not, chance to do it again? That, but, but if you aren't showing up to it in this really genuine way, it's a very good chance that what you're showing up to is not the value, but a sort of storied-up version of that, a kind mm. of ossified, sort of stuck version you know i have to be a good parent i have to uh, uh, you yeah. know <laughs> i have to do yoga to, 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 you know, and it's like a you know you end up with like a value that is like a straitjacket commitments yeah. that are like a straitjacket yeah um and so this is you know i think that the mindfulness processes are facilitative of um values in action processes mm-hmm. you know that that they free up they free us up 
um, for the construction of, you know, to allow us to kind of sit in the middle of the kind of ambiguity of, um, you know, like for example, my wife and I um, um, were together, this November will be 32 years. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, That's awesome. Just, I don't know how that happened since (laughs) I'm slightly over 30 years old. Um, Yeah. Uh, but um, one of the things that's happening is that our kids are aging out. You know, our baby is like 16 years old. And so, you know, w- w- uh, and Diana and I, we were married for 14 years before we had any children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, kind of the, one of the things we're, you know, that's on my mind is, you know, we're going to be a couple again, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like, right, you right. know, where the focus of our life has been being parents for you know, the last 18 years, the focus of our life is going to shift in some ways and sort of, sort of thinking like, what pattern would we like to inhabit? Mm -hmm. You know, if we could kind of, you know, cultivate um, intersections and things that we share together, you know, what do we want the shape of our lives uh, to be? Well, these are inherently uh, ambiguous questions. Um, mm-hmm. ambiguity is kind of scary, change is scary, um, present moment processes, acceptance, diffusion, and, and not confusing yourself with your own story can make it so that you can, you know, really show up for the construction of those patterns, mm-hmm. um, for the flexibility and the changing of those patterns as situations call for, and for the kind of commitments, you know, that involve in a kind of moment by moment return to that valued pattern that you surely will find yourself turned away from and tracking brown stuff all over the house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So so we're sold, we're totally sold on the importance of this. Um <laughs> how do you how do we do it? I know you say practice, but but how do yeah. we practice? Yeah, it's a good question. Um you know, I know uh, many uh, people have found formal mindfulness practices to be very useful to them. Um, you know, my own practice was really cultivated in the ground of conversations, conversations with clients, conversations with students. And I know that that, you know, that uh, it's hard for people to sort of walk away from that and sort of say, okay, I'll do X. Um, uh, you know, currently one of the main places that I practice is in a, a fairly non-woo-woo yoga um, sort of setting. That is, you know, probably my main mindfulness practice mm-hmm. um, that is really sort of devoted to sort of and this moment and this moment and this moment, mm-hmm. like where the time is actually intentionally set aside for that. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, you know, different kinds of practices people can engage in and you can find contemplative and uh, meditative practices in all of the great spiritual traditions. And I guess I would encourage people to um, uh, seek those out. Um, There are lots of places to learn uh, mindfulness meditation, which is um, not really uh, um, religiously oriented or certainly not necessarily so, you know, if you look around. Um, but the other place 
And really the place where my own uh, practice has been uh, cultivated. And again, I, I do not want to try to give the impression that I'm like good at this. You know, I mean, I, I fail a lot um, is, um, you know, to practice slowing down in these conversations that are so important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, to like make sure that I have taken time, you know, when I'm talking to students, um, when I'm talking, uh, you know, to my family, that I take time. And it doesn't have to be all the time, and you don't have to be a saint or, you know, a guy sitting on a mountain contemplating his navel. Um, it, you know, it's more like if you're swimming underwater, every so often you got to come up for air. Mm-hmm. You don't have to come up for air for really a long period of time. As a matter of fact, you can just kind of pop up, take a breath, and hit the water again. Um, you know, if you think about it, if you think about some of the most significant relationships in your life, sometimes very, very brief events leave a really lasting impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I remember when I was little, the best thing about being sick, and there are good things about mm-hmm. being sick, is my mom, she'd come in, she'd tuck the sheets in real tight around me, you know, and the covers in real tight, mm-hmm. and she would like lay a palm on my forehead, you know, and I... You know, I can remember like it was yesterday. And and you think like how much time did that take? And, you know, it was maybe a minute, a minute and a half. Um, but, you know, here I am, you know, and she probably hasn't done that in, over, you know, well over 40 years. But I still remember it. And it made a difference. It stuck. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of getting present stuff, you know, besides these more extended kind of mindfulness practice, um, is something that people can kind of practice in their everyday life. Um, um, uh, a, f- a f- fellow traveler, uh, Jonathan Candle, has a, a really a lovely uh, book um, mm. called Urban Mindfulness. Yeah, I saw that one. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like talking to people about how to practice being mindful where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had uh, a little bit of an intuitive sense of this, I think, um, because I remember uh, attempting to practice some kind of contemplative meditation a long time ago before I met ACT when I was first learned, coming back from that wretched substance abuse career when I was cleaning up and going to school and working and being a citizen. I remember sitting in the uh, cafeteria at Spokane Falls Community College, um, you know, seeing if I couldn't just bring my awareness to rest on some um, idea um, like service and being useful Mm -hmm. um, in the midst of the clatter of, you know, a cafeteria. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and and so I I, I really think if people just kind of pick this up as a practice and pick it up, to the extent that they are, you know, prepared to, um, that um, I think that there's actually pretty darn good evidence that even small amounts of this are pretty good medicine. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. there's some really nice data out there. Uh, Stephen Hoffman did a meta-analysis, which is a fancy way of saying he studied a whole bunch of studies. <laughs> <laughs> and what he did is he looked at a whole bunch of studies that were basically pure mindfulness intervention. So there are people with different kinds of difficulties. Um, 
And the common feature was that they all were treated by interventions that were pretty much, you know, they met in a class once a week for, you know, eight or 12 weeks, and they taught them about mindfulness and meditation. And what he was expecting when he did that meta-analysis is he was expecting to find a kind of a small general benefit from this. And what he found was um, really good, healthy-sized benefits um, across these studies for, um, uh, for the people who were served. And what he found was a really large benefit for people um, uh, uh, who had you know, clinically significant depression and anxiety. Big, big effects just from the simple practice of uh, sitting in awareness of your own breath. Now, these people were in this class you know, an hour or so a week, and they had an assignment to go home and do this mindfulness meditation. Um, uh, but if they're anything like me, they didn't do it half as much as they <laughs> yeah. asked to do it. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and, and this is g- great news because what it means is even a small dose of this, you know, even people only going in there and doing this like once a week or maybe a few days a week, it seemed to really make a difference for them, and especially for the people, you know, who are really distressed. Um, that's great news. And what it means is for, you know, even really busy minds like my own, um, uh, you know, there's benefits to be had. You know, you don't have to just throw up your hands and say, oh, I'm a hard meditator <laughs> somebody else. Uh, and maybe, like me, you'll you'll if you persist long enough, you'll find a practice that suits you. You know, for me, my favorite mindfulness practice, what John Kabat-Zinn calls 360-degree mindfulness, is yoga. Um, and that is the, you know, um, I mean, I, I spend a lot of my time living in the world of words, and yoga is a place where I get to drop out of that for a few minutes and, you know, drop down into, you know, my body and being present. Um, I spend a lot of my time teaching, and yoga is a place where I'm not the teacher, and uh, it's good, you know, to drop out of teaching. Um, and I have spent a big, big part of my life careless of my physical body, and you know, yoga is a place for me to like drop into care. Mm. And uh, so, you know, who knows? Maybe if you persist and try a few things, you'll find something that uh, is a place for you to practice. Um, mm-hmm. That would be my hope mm-hmm. for you know everyone who's listening. Yeah, mm. you know things even as simple as like washing the dishes or something. You know, like you can choose to attend to that in a way that is about just being there. Um, I remember the transition from like hating washing the dishes. It was like punishment my mom would make me do, and then one day I was actually like kind of enjoying it. And I was like, oh, what's up with this? You know, and, and, you know, recognizing that there's a moment there that, like, I don't have to, you know, feel like I've wasted the, yep. the last 10 minutes of my life, that I, I'm actually there for it yeah. as a choice. It's a funny thing that happens when you stop fighting things. And I know we're kind of backtracking to acceptance, <laughs> but, um, you know, accept, uh, the present moment processes help people with acceptance processes and acceptance processes help people with present moment processes. They, they facilitate one another. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, even in uh, uh, hardship and going without, um, you know, there's, there's uh, well, you know, we used to say in, 
you know, supervision at Reno, you know, there's as much living in a moment of pain as in a moment of joy. Mm. Um, and mm. we forget that, you know, we get mm-hmm. so busy trying to extract the hard things from our life that, you know, we miss that there are um, sometimes sweet and sometimes very interesting things that are sitting right next to them, you know, and when we're all about, I have to get rid of X, a lot of times, you know, we miss Y and Z that are laying right next to them, so... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Very cool. Very cool. Excellent. Well, I feel like we've kind of come full circle. We've we've talked about how this relates to the model, and um, you know, peppered throughout this conversation are you know I think you've done a nice job, Kelly, just modeling this by talking about your own struggles and and the ways you've you've cultivated um, just showing up to 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 your life and your clients. Um, sounds like there's some nice science supporting this, so that's that's great, you know, great for me. I'm thinking, you know, I, I tried meditating for 45 minutes every day and that was very tough, but you know, yeah, knowing, knowing that any time I can give to it may, may be helpful is nice. Um, and, and it sounds like there are, you know, we could spend days talking about, you know, where, where people can go from here. But one I would suggest is definitely your book, Mindfulness for Two. Um, are there other, other ways you would um, suggest for folks to, to, to do this practice or get the tools they need to to do this practice as it relates to ACT? Um, you, you know, I, I think it's really worth um, uh, checking out uh, some things that are going on in the sort of more pure mindfulness tradition. So if people are interested in this, like I can't imagine... I mean, you just have to read John Kabat-Zinn's mm-hmm. Full Catastrophe Living. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still think... I mean it's one of the really kind of go-to resources. And, um, you know, I've spent enough time with John that, uh, you know, I read it and I hear his voice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, oh, that lovely but, Massachusetts Worcester accent. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, uh, and so I think things like Full Catastrophe Living and, and his uh, other book, Coming to Our Senses, are, are great. The theoretical perspective is very, very different. But the sensitivities in, and sensibilities in there um, are are very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pema Chodron, I think, is, you know, there's, there's some of these folks out there that aren't from psychological science, they aren't from the behavioral tradition, they aren't from the ACT tradition, um, but, it, you know, in some respects, one of the reasons ACT is the way ACT is, is that um, we you know, inside this tradition have not been shy about exposing ourselves to a lot of ideas that are from outside of our tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, we're um, pretty omnivorous uh, intellectually and uh, spiritually. Um, We've ranged a lot. And, you know, I know like the way Steve's lab, Steve Hayes' lab was when I was being trained there, I spent a lot of time rumbling around in existential stuff and psychodynamic stuff and mm-hmm. gestalt stuff. And that was really encouraged, um, you know, not because I was looking for a new theory, because I, you know, I think, I mean, I'm betting my career on um, behavior theory. Um, uh, but boy, if you don't like their theory and skip their sensibilities because you don't like their theory, you're really missing some really, really great you know, human stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't like the theory of human behavior behind poetry, but uh, uh, my life would be 
grossly impoverished. Um, right. You know, I couldn't have defended my dissertation adequately without poetry. In fact, uh, <laughs> I, in fact, I I I quoted uh, Shakespeare entirely sensibly in my dissertation defense, uh, <laughs> uh, at Reno. I mean, it was yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and so. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's worth sort of looking around in some of these traditions and people will be good enough at sorting the wheat from the chaff. Um, mm-hmm. There's also a lot of really goofy, oh, let me give a warning. <laughs> <laughs> let me give a warning because there is something that I worry about in um, people's encounter with popular uh, visions of mindfulness. And I think, I think there are good science reasons to be cautious of this, is that Mindfulness will very often uh, produce, um, it's, it's, it's not uncommon if people persist at it, will produce really nice feelings. Like people will feel good. Mm. Relaxed is the one I get a lot. Rel- yeah, relaxed yeah, yeah. and, and um, you know, feelings are really, really great. Um, but when you start chasing them, <laughs> um, and right. there's really good evidence, for example, that chasing happiness makes people sick. Mm. It doesn't mean happiness is bad. It doesn't mean don't want happiness. But it means if you start making a career of chasing happiness as a feeling and checking, am I happy now? You know, am I, am I peaceful yet? Am I peaceful yet? Am I get that happiness? Yet? When is it going to mm-hmm. come? It, that's a really unhappiness and unpeacefulness producing activity. <laughs> so, right, and, right. and one of the things you will find out there is they're selling mindfulness as a feel-good tonic. You right, know, they're right. selling it as a feel-good medicine. Mm-hmm. And my concern, and I know I share this concern, um, uh, you know, I've heard uh, John Kabat-Zinn speak of this concern, is that the problem with mindfulness as a feel-good tonic is it works, yeah. kinda, kinda, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But the problem is if you chase it as a feel-good medicine, um, I think that you lose some of the deeper gifts of uh, mindfulness and present moment processes. Like if you're in there being present and being present, um, waiting, waiting for peace to arrive, and you're spending all your time checking for peace to arrive, you know, guess what? Right. You know, you... yeah. Peace, you know, peace um, uh, uh, always comes to the dance, but uh, it doesn't come first. It's never the first one on the dance floor. <laughs> you know? right, right. It always comes to the dance after the dance is well begun. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, the dancing is already going on by the time peace arrives. You know, mm-hmm. people think that peace is the path to a way forward, um, like peace is the fuel. And I would say peace is the exhaust. Yeah. Peace right, is the exhaust right. of, yeah. of practice, you know. Yeah. It's not the fuel of practice, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I would say beware mindfulness practices that are selling themselves on the basis of do X and you'll, you know, you'll get good feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's like an old Zen story about these guys are going to go visit their Zen teacher and they say, you know, how will we know if uh, this person's a good teacher or not? And the, and the master says, well, ask him how to eliminate, you know, bad thoughts. And if he tells you how to do it, leave. 
<laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, it, it, because, you know, and the sensibility, and it's an old sensibility, you know, that you'll find in, in a lot of spiritual traditions, really, is that, um, you know, uh, peace, happiness, uh, liberation, these things are a byproduct of uh, practices and of uh, valued living. They're not the road to valued living. They're a byproduct of that. And to the extent that you clutch onto them, you know, insist on them, damn anything that is not them, you end up um, uh, pushing them even further away. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are plenty of really, you know, of, of, uh, there's plenty of good teaching out there too. So, yeah. what, what about the other problem, which is just like, oh, this is too hard. I've tried. I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I've, I've done, I sat yeah. for an hour and I didn't feel anything. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, this is just too hard and, and, yeah. and I'm tired. I'd feel around for other kinds of practices. I'd be gentle mm-hmm. and practice just a little, just a little. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know there are a lot of different kinds of practices. So maybe you could just bring your awareness to something you care about for a few minutes and get still with something you care about, even just five minutes. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know that that five minutes is like coming up for air when you've been swimming under water till your lungs could burst. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the trouble people have with mindfulness practices is they're so busy damning themselves to be bad at it that that. Uh, you know, for being bad at it, that yeah. right, 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 right. <laughs> it never arrives. You know, you know, be gentle yeah. with yourself. Mindfulness is not, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, like, you know, marine push-ups. You know, I um, mean, yeah. it can be a kind practice. And I, you know, I would just encourage people to be gentle with themselves, to go a little bit at a time. You know, in behavior analysis, we have something called shaping by successive approximations. So you know. Your parents, when they tried to get you to say a word, they didn't like, you know, withhold reinforcement until you said it perfectly. You know, your first, your first little, the first time you went, duh, you know, they were like, did you say da da? That's so nice. You know? <laughs> Later, you got better at saying it, and you could say dad and father, but you got yeah. the reinforcers, you know, even when you even came close. So. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, one thing that you could do is even if you could just give yourself a couple of minutes like this, you know, you might notice that you're somebody who's given that to yourself, yeah. uh, you know, as a, as a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say one other misconception or something people struggle with that I've seen is people have this idea somehow, and, and I think it's a bit of a twist on some, some practices um, in religious traditions that by being mindful, you will rid yourself of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one where folks yeah, said, yeah. you know, like I, I still have thoughts, and I'm like, well, that's good because then it means you're still alive, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not about clearing your mind. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I, oh, I think some yeah. do speak of clearing your mind, but it's at a much higher level than we think about it. It's, it's. I don't think they mean like you won't think anymore. Right? Yeah. I, I don't. It's quite. And there, there, of course, there are many, many different meditative traditions, and you know, I would not pretend to be an expert on any of them. Um, but one way to think of it is, you know, like uh, you can't really keep birds from flying uh, over your house, but you don't have to help them build a nest. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> you know, it's fine. You know. If your thoughts take you off, then that just gives you a chance to practice coming back. You know, if you have enough chances to practice, then you know you'll get better at coming back. Kelly, this is a 
is a totally bad place to do this because we should have done this right in the middle. So this is my fault. <laughs> Can we do one quick mindfulness exercise, just a short one, just to jumpstart our listeners into a flavor for what we're talking about? Well, we've actually done several during yes, the yeah. uh, during during this, but um, but sure, we could we could um. What do you mean? We could. Well, what I mean is um. Um, were you listening with care and attention when I was talking about uh, laying in the middle of that hardwood floor um, uh, uh, in the yoga studio offering myself the gift of self-care? Right. Well, Mm -hmm. that's a mindfulness exercise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just led, and I just led it. (laughs) (laughs) How how did I lead it? Well, I led it um, by the pacing that you heard in my voice, by my sort of moment-by-moment contact with what it was like, you know, to lay on that floor and to offer myself that gift. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and my guess is, um, and I'm pretty good at guessing at this because I've had some practice, uh, is that, you know, you were sort of listening to that in a particular way. Um, You know, that kind of present moment focused, non-exclusive, you know, gentle awareness you know, maybe a thought wandered through your mind like, gee, what would it look like if I offered myself such a gift? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if I don't have to wait till I'm 56? You know, sometimes people say they come to study with me here at Ole Miss. It's like a five-year act workshop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in some regards, it's in some regards it's a little bit like a five-year uh, mindfulness meditation too. And yeah. in some ways, um, not that it's always like you know all om all the time or anything like that. It's not om om on the range. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm crazy as hell. You know, I mean, uh, if that has not been made abundantly clear, <laughs> I'm crazy as hell. But I come back. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, this isn't. I mean. If we leave the practice on the cushion, that's not it. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in a certain way, act is a mindfulness practice. Um, except what we are bringing our awareness to is a valued pattern of living. Mm-hmm. And what we will find is that we will wander from that valued pattern. And what commitment is, is just like in a mindfulness meditation, you bring your awareness gently back to your breath or whatever the focus of the meditation is. Um, in act, we bring our lives back to our values. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to find my way towards uh, losing the distinction between um, mindfulness and living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, probably one of the, I mean, I, I, I just have to guess, and I'm no expert on mindfulness. I mean, not by a way, way long shot. And I make a big apology in the front of mindfulness for two, saying, if this doesn't sound like mindfulness for you too, from your scholarly study of mindfulness, you know, then call it chicken soup or, you know, <laughs> stuff. Like, I don't make any claim that what I'm talking about is mindfulness. I'm saying this is mindfulness from not even the act perspective, an act perspective. Mm-hmm. From an act perspective, you know, I'm trying to dissolve the distinction between mindfulness practice and living. Um, and and I would say that probably one of the devilish 
details that people have with mindfulness practice is that they have it be different than living. Right. So mm-hmm. to even ask the question, do a mindfulness, to even ask you to do a mindfulness exercise really misses the point. Well, I, no, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, and there's no reason that you should suspect that. Um, I did not suspect it myself. I was doing it for like really a long time without knowing I was doing it. It took someone from outside. It took Judas Soulsby's right, right. careful ear <laughs> But as, but as a new as a new act, you know, therapist, uh-huh. I, for me, it's like do leaves on the stream, do soldiers <laughs> in the parade, you know, do <laughs> yes. do some metaphor, and you've done mindfulness in therapy, right? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I would say the overwhelming majority of mindfulness exercises I do with clients in the room last under a minute. Really? And yeah, absolutely. I mean, overwhelming majority. It's rare that I do these really extended exercises. Feel your fingers and feel the tingling in your fingers. And now, it, you know, it, that. It, it'll be like they'll say something and I'll hear it. And I'll be like, oh, could you say that again? Mm. Could you take just a moment mm. and see if you can recall that moment? Allow yourself to see it and give words to it so that I can see it too. And then we're back into the conversation, you know. It's, 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 I mean, I would say most of them are that short. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? From a radical behavioral perspective, multiple exemplars, <laughs> right? Like you're doing multiple examples of, of that moment of just showing up. Yeah. And not just for my client, for me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Practice in there. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm starting to understand. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Steve Hayes, I'd say, I'd say that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> but since I'm, um, I'm not, then I'll just say, and I'm just teasing about Steve. <laughs> since I'm not, I'll just say, welcome, welcome. <laughs> it's my favorite thing that John Kabat-Zinn says. It's just sumptuous whenever he says, welcome. Welcome? <laughs> welcome. 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 He hears something human from the audience. He says, welcome. Ah. <laughs> it's, nice. it's nice. What do you think, Jen? Do you think we covered it? I think we did. I think we we sure did. It, you know, we, we got people... Uh, a good taste for this, and uh, you know, I think Kelly's opened the door for folks to find their their own path with this kind of work, and I I think that's that's a good place to end it mm. uh, at the beginning. <laughs> it was really really a pleasure talking with you uh, mm. today. I really enjoyed it. And Kelly, it's an honor for us to share you with uh, the world in a way that hopefully will reach people that you aren't reaching now. That's our goal. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank All you right. for being here. It's been wonderful. All right. Well. Just the business keeping end, we want to invite all of you to check out uh, this podcast and other cool materials at contextualpsychology.org and at contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. This podcast is also available on iTunes and it's best consumed on some type of MP3 player where you can drive or mow the lawn or exercise as you're being enlightened by Kelly and Jennifer (laughs) and others. So please uh, take advantage of that. And thanks for joining us. Please go to our Facebook page uh, to provide feedback. Like us there, spread the love and spread the word to others. Tell your friends, family, children, grandparents, and anyone else you know about us. And uh, we just really appreciate the support. 
Awesome. Thanks, everyone. All right. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Kelly. Have a good day.